This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This is Matt Woodley with PreachingToday.com on Monday Morning Preacher. Thanks for tuning in to this episode in which we explore one facet of preaching and try to grow as proclaimers of God's good news in Jesus Christ. And I'm here today with uh, Dr. Abraham or Abe Kuruvilla, who is the Senior Research Professor of Preaching and Pastoral Ministries at Dallas Theological Seminary. It is so great to have you on our podcast today. Delighted to be with you, Matt. Thank you. Abe, a few years ago, you wrote a an article called Time to Kill the Big Idea, question mark, in which you argued it is time to kill the big idea. Um, and we're going to get into that. And it was a great article and created some controversy in the evangelical homiletic society. But I just want to talk about you first. So you are a very interesting guy. You're ethnically Indian, but you were born in Kuwait. You have a PhD in immunology and a PhD in the hermeneutics of preaching. And uh, so you are one busy guy. You have a private practice in dermatology, plus you're a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. So start by telling us, uh, what do you do in your spare time, Abe, if you have any? Sleep. <laughs> I know that's not true. You also like motorcycling, right? Don't yeah, you? Yeah, where did you find that? Oh, I'm in. I'm really doing research on you. background here, haven't you? <laughs> I got a there thick file on you. <laughs> We did research on you, you know? We don't just, in, just invite anybody on this show. We do background <laughs> checks. Well, I watch oh. a lot of cricket. Oh, um, you do? You like cricket, huh? I'm a big cricket fan, and I listen to a lot of Bach and do a lot of reading. That's probably what I do in my spare time. You do do a lot of reading. You, I think you also probably do a lot of fiction reading as well, don't you? Yes, yes. Okay, I well, I'd love to talk about cricket and fiction sometimes, so we'll, we'll have to go offline to talk about that, but... You know, as, as you know, I'm preaching today, we've usually made a big deal about the big idea in biblical preaching. So let's just start with this. Uh, let's start with just take your best shot at summarizing what most people mean when they talk about the big idea. I'll go back to what Haddon Robinson intended it to be. I think that's probably a good start. Uh, okay. That the text pericope that's being used for preaching is reduced to a big idea in a propositional format. That means having a subject and a complement. So it is, a text is reduced to a sentence. And ultimately, it is that sentence that needs to be preached. And it's that sentence that needs to be caught by listeners. Okay. That's... So I, I, I summarize it by saying distilling the text and preaching the distillate. Yes. And so that big idea pretty much shapes the whole content and thrust of the sermon. So uh, in that article I mentioned, time to kill the big idea, question mark, you begin the article by, I don't know, two or three pages, uh, dozens of preachers you mentioned who are all very pro big idea. And then you proceed to argue why it is high time to kill the big idea. 
It's one of the things I appreciate about getting to know you, Abe, is that you're not afraid to make some waves when you feel like something's really important. So tell us your biggest problem with the big idea. The big idea ultimately is a creation of the preacher. It's not in the text. It's something that the preacher creates. And to say that a text of many hundreds of words can be losslessly reduced to a propositional sentence of the big idea in about a dozen words is, uh, as is obvious, is doing something to the doctrine of inspiration and to the substantiality of the sacred writ, because it's saying that my concoction of the big idea is equivalent to, if not better, if it weren't better, why would I use it, right? But yes. at, least, at least equivalent to the inspired text. Yeah. I, I have a problem with that, a small problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think, I think most big idea preachers would say, no, it does come from the text. It comes from exegesis. It comes from, I'm expositing the text. I'm doing the work of hermeneutics. And this is the one central idea that I am drawing from this text. So how would you respond to that? If that were what God wanted us to communicate, and if that was what God wanted to communicate himself, he would have been better off, if I may say it that way, to okay. have just given us a bulleted list of big ideas rather than arcane stories, sentimental poetry, and some inane laws. <laughs> So why did not God do that? Well, he didn't. So we have to improve on his work. We'll make it that way. We'll give yeah. people what they need. The big idea. Okay. So maybe one verse from the book of Proverbs might be in big idea format. Maybe. Yes. I'd say that any pericope that's chosen. Yeah. There is a big idea or an, an idea, but it takes all the words of that pericope to express that mm. idea. Otherwise, okay. why would God have inspired it that way? Okay. That's what I'm saying. Okay. And you, you talk about privileging the biblical text. You're not against reduction per se. You're not against propositional statements. But you do, you're, you're challenging us to take what you call a fresh look at preaching. And one of the things you talk about is privileging the biblical text. And you even wrote a book called Privilege the Text published by Moody, right? So what do you mean by privileging the biblical text? Uh, the text is all that we have, and the text is what is inspired, and the text is what we need to preach. The text must be privileged. Perhaps the best way to explain that is with a, uh, or uh, alluding to biblical narrative. So what is being talked about the actual history is what I call behind the text, what actually happened. And if I may be so bold as to say that what happened is not inspired. It's the Holy Spirit's account of what happened that is inspired and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and so on. So rather than looking at the text as a plain glass window through which I can see what really happened and then preach that. I would argue that the text is not a plain glass window through which I look, but it's a stained glass window at which 
I look. And the glass and the colors and the lead and the copper and all that goes into the formation of the stained glass is carefully chosen by the artisan, in this case, God who inspired the text, to have a particular effect upon the listener or in the case of the stained glass, the viewer. Yeah. So there's a sense in which the text has to be privileged, not anything behind it, not anything created from it, not any distillate that is concocted from it. Okay, so we didn't discuss this, but let's just, let's talk about an example. Let's just take something really familiar like Psalm 23. And I'll just rip off a big idea. Big idea might be, I can have peace because the Lord cares for me or something like that. That's maybe not a great big idea, but it's, we could do better than that, but that's a big idea. Okay. So there I got my big idea and now I'm going to preach Psalm 23. What are you, what's wrong with that? And then how would you approach that text differently? As most of the original propounders of the big idea said, once you get the big idea, that's what the audience needs to catch. So yes. then I would ask you, Matt, why do you need Psalm 23 now and that you've gotten the big idea? Let's get rid of it and convey your big idea to the audience. Why do you have to couch it in a sermon of many hundred words? So look at what's happened. Yeah. A psalm of many hundred words, I haven't counted yeah. it, right. has in it, big idea advocates say, a hiding big idea. Mm -hmm. So I have to re-engineer, reverse engineer, strip off all the, the, the shroud from the psalm and capture that big idea. And now have to re-shroud it in my sermon so that then the audience can remove that shroud again and catch the big idea. That's a somewhat of a convoluted procedure, is it not? It, yes. And, and would you also argue that you're missing the poetry, the, the images, the structure, the emotional impact. Is that Absolutely. Okay. The power and the potency. And I haven't looked carefully at Psalm 23, but perhaps even a lot of the word plays there that are intended to impact and to hit our guts. So that's back to your image with the stained glass window. You're missing the stained glass and you're looking through it to something behind it. Because how a text is written, said, impacts, has a lot to do with what it is doing or the force or the thrust that it is evoking. Yeah, you talk about uh, authorial doings, the doing of the author. So un unpack for that for us, what, is, what does that mean? Well, Matt, if you and I were in, this is my, as a standard example, it's brief, it's easy to say, if you and I were in an elevator together, in a crowded elevator, and I happened to be stepping on your foot, and you said, Abe, your foot is on mine. What you were saying was giving me the location of my foot, which is on top of yours. Right. What you were doing with what you were saying is telling me to get off. <laughs> now, unless I catch what you're doing, there can be no valid application. Yeah. I can just say, okay, thank you for letting me know where my foot was and just forget about it. Uh, that wouldn't do. I ha that goes for, this is how we communicate. This is how language works. This is how 
texts work. And this is also how scripture works. If you don't catch the authorial doing, there can be no valid application. Yeah. Let's talk about application too, because the article, as I recall, you didn't go deep into application. No, right? that was not my intent at all. My and, focus and you, was on the hermeneutics, the understanding yes, of the text. Yes. So, well, actually, let's, let's talk about this first, because you, you do talk, you argue for what you call the theological focus in our preaching of the biblical text before us. What do you mean by that? And how is that different than the big idea? So the big idea is a reduction. And my opposition to such reductions is only in how they are used, that the big idea is considered to be a lossless reduction of the text. And that big idea is what must be preached and caught by the audience, which is what Haddon Robinson and uh, Don Sunukin and many of the others have been saying. Now, I don't have problems with reductions per se. Uh, say, for instance, as a dermatologist, if one of my patients tells me that she is putting hydrocortisone on her athlete's foot, I would talk her out of it because hydrocortisone and over-the-counter medication would make her athlete's foot worse. Mm. However, if she has eczema and is using hydrocortisone, I would ask her to continue because it does help. In other words, hydrocortisone, there is a right use and a wrong use for it. Uh, likewise for reductions, there, there are right uses for it and a wrong use. A wrong use is to think that a reduction of a text is a lossless, exhaustive, comprehensive entity that captures everything in the text. And then that Reduction has to be preached and caught by the audience. That, I think, is a wrong use, because mm -hmm. then it, it, uh, it actually militates against the inspiration of Scripture. However, there are right uses, and the right use is for the sermon preparer, the preacher, you and I, uh, not for the sermon listener necessarily. And the use for a theological focus, a reduction, is, number one, that it helps us get a sermon map a sermon outline much easier. It gives me, it, it helps me create a blueprint for how I am to progress through my sermon. And it also may help me to get some specific application, but I, I can give you an example if we have time, but. Yeah, give me an example. Give me an example. I was just going to ask for one actually. Okay. Let's, uh, and, and you know, for these uh, secular things are very helpful. Uh, let's go to the old Aesop's fable. A dog once stole into a butcher shop, stole a bone, and on its way home with its booty happened to cross a bridge that had a stream underneath. The dog happened to look down into the stream and saw another dog with a bone. Well, the real dog barked at the virtual one, consumed with greed because it wanted the other bone too, and of course lost the bone that it had. So I might put the big idea down as Greed leads to loss. Okay. Okay. That's probably fair enough. Sure. Now, if I have that reduction, I don't, that's not what I want the listeners to catch. I want them to catch the impact of the story. And, mm. but nonetheless, this, this reduction is useful because if I split this reduction into two parts, cause and effect, greed leads to loss. Now, I've, I've got a fairly decent map of how I'm going to preach this non inspired and Unauthoritative yeah. text, of course. Right. 
I might start with greed and talk about the dog's greed and talk about our greed, how we too are greedy. And in my second move, I talk about loss, the dog's loss, bringing the story and say how we too are prone to losing much if we are avaricious and acquisitive. Yeah. Acquisitiveness never says enough. We always want more and so on and so forth. So I've got a good map and then of course, follow it up with an application, which could be don't be greedy. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about like a recent sermon you've done because I know you're, you're preaching on a fairly regular basis, right? You're preaching in your, your home church or preaching in other churches, so. Pretty much a fill-in preacher. Okay, yes, true. Let's talk about a recent sermon you've done. Can you think of a, a recent sermon you've done? You want to get one in your head? The most recent one was on a Good Friday that I preached on Mark 14, the woman who anointed Jesus. Okay, great text. So how did you, how did you approach that text with your theological focus, with your authorial doings? How did you approach that text? Approach meaning studying it or preaching it? I'm assuming you meant the preaching of it. Yeah, maybe both. Maybe both. Yeah. Just give us a summary of both. Well, the preacher, uh, the studying of it involves just digging through its structure. It's one of those Markan sandwiches. Mark has at least six uh-huh. of those sandwiches in Mark where he starts a story, stops it in midstream, begins a second story, completes that, mm. then goes back to the first one. Okay. So bun, bun, patty in the middle. Okay. okay. Uh-huh. So this Mark 14, 1 through 11 is another one of his sandwiches. It starts off in the uh, precincts of the temple where the chief priests and scribes are plotting to kill Jesus. Then it goes into this woman's anointing. Then it ends with Judas going to those chief priests and getting money. The contrasts are amazing. So you have the elite and then in the middle you have some nobodies. In fact, Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper. Yeah. Ah, You can't get any more distinct from that in the contrast. You have a named disciple, Judas, and in the middle you have an unnamed woman. Now, if you've been paying attention to Mark all along, you also know that he has a soft spot for women. Every time a woman is introduced who comes into contact with Jesus, she is the heroine while the 12 male disciples are constantly falling flat on their faces. Mm. So the moment we see a woman, we know, ah, this is going to be good. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. And so she gives money because her ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii. Judas gets money. She gives money for Jesus' burial. Judas gets money to bury or to kill Jesus. Yeah. The contrasts are just amazing. What is a true disciple and who is not a true disciple? And so here's this woman who, knowing Jesus' mission, gives an extravagant sacrifice. That 300 denarii is your annual salary. and may have been her social security, her health care, her nest egg, everything she had to live on. She gave it all. Crack, glob, glob, glob. There it goes. Mm. And of course, the disciples were rightly upset. What are you doing, woman? We're setting up a kingdom here. You're just pouring. We need money to buy iPhones and laptops and staplers, and you're just pouring this down the drain? 
And Jesus says, leave her alone because he says she understood my mission to mm. die while you disciples never did. And in fact, in Mark 8, 9 and 10, three times Jesus foretold his mission that he was going to die. And each of those three times, the minute he said what he was going to do, die, the disciples mess up. They don't understand what he's about. They want to know who's the greatest. They want to know who's going to be on his left. They just don't get his mission. This woman did. And she gave her all. And notice she doesn't even say a single word. There's no name. Anonymous, no word woman will never be forgotten, Jesus says. She will always be proclaimed where the gospel, which is this broad sense of what God's doing in the cosmos, is proclaimed. Her name will be announced because she understood my mission, Jesus said, and gave her all. So that's kind of how I did it. Yeah. Yeah, and the sermon was not very different from that. And yeah, yeah, finally yeah. asked for, yeah. this is not I, something, and in application, it's not something that right. you want people to repeat and get a habit. So this was a time when I called for an application from all of us that is a one-time extravagant sacrifice. And I yeah. gave some ideas as to what that might be for. And I even threw out, hey, if you are single, maybe you should just consider whether celibacy is your gift. Hmm. And that hmm. may be your extravagant yeah. sacrifice. Yeah. For others, it may be extravagant sacrifice of money. But usually applications are meant to be repeated and so that they become habituated. But this one calls for a one-time yeah. extravagant right. sacrifice. So I took it. That's the way I took it. So I understand that's a great example of your image of the stained glass. Like you, I want people to see the stained glass. I want them to be impacted by the beauty of this stained glass, this, this text, this story, this narrative. And so that's why, I use the, that's why I use the metaphor of curation. I want yeah. the preacher to be a curator of the text. Ah. I, I'm not creating a masterpiece. I'm curating the master's piece. Ah, midwife to the text. I'm just a handmaid. I'm just a servant. I'm just a curator. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not creating something, you know, rhetorical pyrotechnics and with right. No, no, no. I'm just facilitating the audience reading the text better. That's really yeah. my role. Yeah. Because why would I, the preacher, want to interpose myself between the word of God for the people of God? Hmm. Who am I to stand in the middle? Yeah. Simply because they may not catch everything that the author is doing. I just stand here and point out those things. And then I get out of the way so that the word of God can affect my listeners. Of course, it has yeah. to have had effect to have affected me first. Yeah, that's really powerful. I really like that. Well, let me just ask you one more question as we close. But And this is not so much on this topic, but you you... You've walked beside a lot of preachers, preachers in training. You've seen a lot of pastors. I know you've been involved. You love the church. What is, what is advice that you would give to pastors? And, and we, didn't, we didn't discuss this, so I'm asking you off the cuff here. What, what advice would you give to pastors just for your own soul as a pastor, for your own person as a son or a daughter of the living God? What, what advice would you give? Because again, You've walked beside a lot of preachers. You've trained a lot of preachers. What advice would you give along those lines? 
as far as preaching is concerned, I would say, and as far as the text is concerned, I mean, for pastoring and preaching, there would be yeah. a lot of things that I would offer, love your flock, etc. But yeah. just focusing on the hermeneutics of these things, yeah. that's what we're talking about. Let the word hit you. Mm. Let the word have its first impact on you. You cannot make other people cry for which you have not shed any tears. Yeah. It has to have affected you first. So grappling with it, pouring into it, exploring it, not letting it go like Jacob wrestling with God. I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. I'm not let, going to let the text go unless it reveals itself. And then, as uh, Thomas Long once said, and then don't give them the final product, or let me put it the way he said it. Give them the eggs. Let them make the omelets themselves. <laughs> So once it's hit you, now yeah. take them through that same procedure so that the word hits them. Mm. Same way that it hit you. That's curation. That, oh, I love that. Yeah. Rather than cooking it up and, okay, here's the omelet. No, no. Uh -huh. The eggs hit me. Now, not that somebody threw an egg at me. Right, right. Uh, the force and the impact and the import of it hit me hard. I, I want that same impact to hit my flock without That's too much manipulation of it into omelets. That's great. Thank you. Wow. Abe, it's been really fun talking to you. I really, I always enjoy talking to you. Hope we can talk again soon. And preaching today, people, thanks. Uh, Abe's book is called uh, Privilege the Text. That's one of your books. You've written a lot of books and a lot of commentaries as well. Abe, thanks again for being with us. It was a delight. Thank you very much, Matt. And thanks for uh, Christianity Today for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you. This is Matt Woodley with PreachingToday.com on Monday Morning Preacher. Hope you can tune in for our next episode. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu slash hdl.